it was interesting as I prepared for this, and it's called Trusting in the Waiting. And I found out through many examples in my own life in the last two weeks, I don't do that near as well as I thought I did. Um, I mean, the, the first week, I'm sitting there, I'm going to a, an individual's house, and the guy's literally in front of me doing 15 to 20 miles an hour this filament on a two-lane road that I cannot get around him for like 10 miles. And it was just like, okay, God, I get it. And then the next day, something similar happens. And my point being is I found out that I'm really a slow learner sometimes. Um, and the one thing that I find is challenging, when I was growing up, um, we actually sent these things called letters. You had to put a stamp on them. And they had to go from point A to point B and then back again if you got a response at all. And it was usually five to seven days. That was just the norm. So it wasn't a big deal. I mean, you might send something that was really important to you, and it still took time to get there, and you could do nothing but wait. I actually think it was easier for me to wait then than it is now, because what did we do? We got computers, and then all of a sudden we started sending emails. Those were fantastic. We could send something to somebody. They might respond to us that day or the next day, and you get the response you needed to get, to get whatever it was you needed done done. But that wasn't quite fast enough. So then what do we do? We got text messages on our phones. Now, for the most part, you can send somebody a text, and there's a fairly high likelihood that you are going to get a response within a few minutes, depending on what the, you know, the person's, how busy they are at the time. And my point to that is, is what we've done is everything that we're doing, we're being... Um, conditioned to get it now. And what I find is I think I'm less patient today sometimes than I was earlier in my life. But that's because I can get everything now. If I go to a restaurant, you know, if I go to a fast food restaurant and they send me to purgatory in that little line that has a little box, how many of us like that little box? Because we know it's not going to go well. Okay? Or I go into a store and I just want to go pick up one or two items. How many of you have walked into a store, saw long lines at the cash registers, and walked back out? Yes. We don't want to wait. It's not that we can, you know, it's still we need it, but yet we don't want to wait. But most of the time, if we really need something, we wait. We know it's going to be miserable. Did I say that right? Anyway, but anyway, um, point being is, is we still go out there and we know, we have confidence that we're going to receive it. The other thing that, that God kind of brought out to me was that when I struggle with something in a secular realm, I find that I typically have the same issue in the spiritual realm. So if I'm sitting there and I pray for something, I want my answer right now and have it, have it the way I want it in my timing. And we can struggle with that. And what we, if we don't realize that we have been conditioned to get everything now, Sometimes waiting on God to answer us is difficult, and it can be challenging because all of a sudden we can think, okay, God, you didn't hear me. Let me repeat this again. And yet sometimes there's actually a purpose in that waiting per period. Part of it's for you. Well, actually, it's all for you. But the point being is we have to be confident in that. If we're not careful, what can we do if we don't get the answer quick enough? We sit there, and all of a sudden, we go to plan B or plan C, and we try to get to fix it ourselves, or we try to get somebody else to fix it, and we don't sit there and relax and say, okay, God, you got this. I'm trusting in what you're doing. That can be a very challenging place to be at, especially if it's a health issue that you have in your life or in somebody else's life that you love, is trying to figure out that balance. And... And still be confident in the answer, even when the answer sometimes is no. None of us like to be told no. I started to have a video, decided not to. I have a little screaming child because I don't like to listen to him sometimes. Um, but point being is, if you have a two or three-year-old and you tell them no, what is their typical response? You know, it can be everything from yes to, you know, just kind of a shouting 
Sometimes I've seen, even in my own household, kids throw themselves on the floor, scream, beat on the floor and that. Unfortunately, sometimes as adults, we're just like that. And that can be a real challenge. Um, but the, the, the point to that is, is, is try, what we're going to talk about today is times when people did a good job of waiting, sometimes when they didn't do a good job, and sometimes it's the same individual. So some things you have a very easy time waiting for, and other things may be more challenging, more pressing. Um, let's look at Isaiah 40, 26 through 31. It says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their host by number? He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, Neither faints nor is weary. He underst- his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and those who have no might, he increases their strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up on with w- wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. What's interesting about this scripture is this whole concept of having to wait, okay? When I first looked it up, I looked it up in the NLT, and the NLT listed as this, this way. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength, and they will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. And the point being is, you know, I was talking with Pastor Scott about this, and it was one of those things where, you know, one scripture says wait, and the other one says trust. But did you know you can't wait if you don't trust? And sometimes when you're trusting, you have to wait. And I just thought, you know, I want to bring that out. It's a challenge sometimes to do that. But if you know who your God is, if you know that your God loves you, then you can sit there and be confident and not run away from having to wait. Um, If I don't do that, Again, we'll go back to that whole plan B thing again. I'm going to sit there and think, I got to do this. I got to do that. And the more I don't trust God, the more that I'm going to struggle in that. Let's look at Psalms 46, uh, 1 through 11. Our God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear when earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. Let the oceans roar and foam. Let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. A river builds or brings joy to the city of our God, the sacred home of the Most High. God dwells in the city. It cannot be destroyed. For the very break of day, God will protect it. The nations are in chaos and their kingdoms crumble. God's voice thunders and the earth melts. The Lord of heaven, our, heaven's armies are here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. Come see the glorious works of the Lord. See how he brings destruction upon the world. He causes the wars to end throughout the earth. He breaks the bow, he snaps the spear, and he burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be honored by every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. The Lord of heaven's armies is here among us, and the God of Israel is our fortress. Sometimes we forget about there is actually a heavenly realm around us and that God is is with us. But this whole concept of being still sometimes, here again, is very challenging because I want to do something. I want to fix it. I want to see God moving right now. And sometimes that, that trust has is, is got to go into the stillness. You know, we talked here, I think it was a couple sermons ago where I was preparing and Scott tells me to go in my office and be quiet and be still. And it's like, I can't do that. I've only got a couple days left. But I learned something. He spoke to me and said, go home. I'll tell you tomorrow. That was not what I wanted to hear on Tuesday, that I had to have a sermon ready by Sunday. Typically, my sermons take me a little longer than Scott's. You're lucky. Um, but it, my point being to that is, it can be a very uncomfortable 
place to be in when you have to be still and listen to what God's speaking to you. But as you do that and learn to do that more and more, you become more confident in that God's going to hear you. He's going to give you that answer and you're going to be okay, that he's got it under control. Because if we look back at that scripture we were just looking at, it talks about who snapped the bow, who burned the shields. It wasn't you. He didn't ask for your help. And I think sometimes in that stillness, what God wants to tell you is, I got this. I don't need your help. And sometimes we have a hard time with that. Does that mean he never asks you to do anything? He does. But sometimes the challenge with that is when God speaks something to you to go do something, sometimes what we do is we take that and we want to run with it. And all of a sudden, we start adding to what God's speaking to us. And all of a sudden, it becomes our work if we're not careful that we need to accomplish. And it doesn't look like what he actually asks you to do. So just be aware of that be con- you know, and, and listen to what God speak, speaks to you. But the other portion of that is go back and ask for directions. It's okay. We're going to learn, look at some people that did that today. Now, as we look at these people, I want you to remember something. They didn't have God's word in front of them. Some of them had the first five books, and that's all they had. Okay? So don't judge these people too harshly because they didn't have the information that you have. And if you find yourself wanting to judge them a little bit harshly, just look at your own life and the times that you make mistakes, and yet you still have the word that's there in front of you to help guide you. Okay? Um. What happens if we get into a hurry and don't wait, okay, or don't ask? So we're going to look at a couple of these people. In Genesis 12, 10 to 20, this is talking about Abram. When he's set out, he actually does what God tells him. God told him to leave his family. He says, I'm going to take you to the land that I'm going to show you. You notice that there's no destination at. He didn't say, I'm going to tell you to go to this city. He says to the land that I'm going to show you. Okay, so Abram sets out. He does what God tells him to do, and he heads that direction. And in that process, this is, what, this is where this story kind of picks up at. At that time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan, forcing Abram to go down to Egypt, where he lived as a foreigner. As he was approaching the border of Egypt, Abram said to his wife, Sarah, Sarai, look, you are a very beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Let's kill him. We can have her. So please tell them that you are my sister. Then they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. And sure enough, Abram arrived in Egypt. Everyone knows Sarai's beauty. When the palace officials saw her, they sang her praises to Pharaoh, their king. And Sarai was taken into his palace. Then the Pharaoh gave Abram many gifts because of her, sheep, goats, cattle, male, female donkeys, and male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord sent a terrible plague upon Pharaoh and his household because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and accused him sharply. What have you done to me? He demanded. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister and allow me to take her as my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and get out of here. Pharaoh ordered some of his men to escort them, and he sent Abram out of the country along with his wife and all of his possessions. And here's what I want to bring out in this. Nowhere in here do you see that Abram, one, asked God where to go in this particular case. He said, okay, there's a famine. I've got to get some food. Everybody's going to die if I don't. Here, I'm going to go to Egypt and get taken care of. Then he realizes that, you know, he's got a beautiful wife, and there's a possibility that he's going to get killed because of his wife. And his choice, instead of going to God and say, hey, you know, what what do you want me to do? How should I handle that? He comes up with his own plan, okay? It's interesting that he gets ejected from the, the country forcibly, shall we say. He was escorted out of the country. It wasn't a matter of just telling him to leave. They sat there and walked him out to the border, okay? And you have to wonder, okay, what would have God's plan been had he asked? 
you know, Pharaoh was obviously not very happy with him when he left. You know, he could have easily had, I think if God hadn't have promised him that he was going to take him to this land, in the natural, Pharaoh probably would have done more than escort him out of the country. He might have stayed there for a really long time in the sand. Um, just something to think about. And we have to be careful when we don't ask God for his directions. Um, and just so you know, I am not referring to anyone in that, this next part. I'm not referring to anyone in this room, and you're not, I'm not referring to your spouse. But do you know anybody that asks, doesn't ask those questions? You know, how many times have we not done that ourselves? Okay? Um, let's look at Genesis 15, 4 to 6. Then the Lord said to him, Know that your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. So that's a really good thing to you know, have happen in your life. God makes a promise to you, and he sits there, and he believes that God's going to fulfill what he says. Okay? But if we would go on into the next chapter, you're going to find out that his wife, Sarai, is barren. So it's like, okay, she's barren. I'm going to have all these kids. That's not going to work out. So they come up with a plan, him and his wife do. She gives him Hagar, her maidservant. And Hagar has a son. Abram's 86 years old when this happens. Okay? He didn't go back to God and ask him again for further directions. He sat there and said, this is what you said. Now I got to make it happen. We can do the same thing. What that would later cause is when Sarai would later, 14 years later, would have her own son. Okay? And part of the problem would happen then, there would be a conflict that would happen between the two women and their sons. And Abram would be forced to send out Hagar and her son. And I can't imagine as a father having to send out your, your, a woman who's been your wife for 14 or 15 years. And all of a sudden, you've got to send her out and your son, never to see them again. All the pain that that would have caused me to have to do that. Again, it's one of those cases where Abram was sitting there and he helped God do, fulfill his plan. We have to be very careful that we don't sit there and help God fulfill the plans of our life. And that can be challenging, especially when you know God has spoke something to you and you're not seeing it happen in the timing that you want. You want to see it now. You want to get it done. And in some ways, we almost take responsibility to see that it happens. But there is a balance between doing nothing and waiting on God to fulfill that. So we're going to look at a couple more people. We're going to look at uh, Saul. And Saul is one of those people where um, we can learn a lot from Saul. Basically how not to do things. Um, but if you look at his life and you put yourself in his place, I think most of us would find times where we're just like Saul and we have the same challenges in our life. First Samuel chapter 9 and 10, I'm just going to summarize this. The people wanted a king, Okay. God didn't say, I want you to have a king. The people wanted it. Samuel was frustrated by that, but the people wanted it. God relented and said, okay, we're going to give you a king. And God chose Saul. When he became king, he was 30 years old. He would actually reign, even with, through all that we're getting ready to read, he would reign for 42 years. Okay? Initially, it's interesting to me that, that Saul would struggle with who God said he was. Later, he would struggle with who God said he wasn't. Okay? We have to be careful and, and to accept who God says you are. That can be very, very challenging, especially when you don't feel you measure up. You don't feel you fit the mold. Okay? 
All right. So Saul, his first test as a leader. We're going to pick that up, pick up his life there in 1 Samuel 13, 5 through 12. The Philistines mustered a mighty army of 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and as many warriors as the grains of the sand on the seashore. They camped at Michmash and at Beth Haven. The men of Israel saw what a tight spot they were in, and because they were hard-pressed by the enemy, they tried to hide in caves, thickets, rock holes, rocks, holes, and cisterns. Some of them crossed the Jordan River and escaped into the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier. But Samuel still didn't come. Saul realized that his, tra- his troops were rapidly slipping away. So he demanded, bring me the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offerings himself. Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offerings, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet him and welcomed him. But Samuel said, what is it you have done? Saul replied, I have saw my man scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would, and the Philistines at Michmash are ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled to offer the the burnt offerings myself before you came. Here's what I want to bring out in here. Is he felt all this pressure. The enemy was up there all around him. You know, his army wasn't even really formed yet. He hadn't been king that long. And he's sitting there going, I got to do something. I cannot sit there and, and just do nothing. And it's interesting that he asked for to do, to do the burnt offerings. He knew enough that that, you know, that was a priestly role. Saul was not a priest, okay? Earlier, Saul had actually, God had come and anointed him and had prophesied. And so he had prophesied what God spoke to him. But the point being is that somehow he made this jump from being a king to being a priest and thought it was okay to do so because somebody had to do it. And yet, that wasn't the right thing to do. Let's continue the story. This is what Samuel's response is. How foolish, Samuel, Samuel exclaimed. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Samuel then left Gilgal and went on his way, but the rest of the troops went with Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibberth in the land of Benjamin. When Saul counted the men who were still with him, he found only 600 were left. Okay? So you can imagine you've got this massive army out there and the panic that would ensue if you were in charge of the country and you see all your troops melting away. It says these guys were hiding everywhere. They were running away. And you think, okay, I've got to do something to bring these guys all back to me. And yet what he did was wrong. And what he did cost his family the kingdom. So what, sometimes we, and again, he gets got in a little bit of a hurry because he says that as soon as he got done with the offerings, Samuel showed up. You know, what would happen if he'd waited an hour or two longer and God would have showed up and Samuel would have done things, things would have drastically been, been different. But at the same time, it also reveals to us part of Saul's heart. It reveals to us some of the flaws that were within Saul. In 1 Samuel uh, 4, 14, 1 through 14, if you want to look it up later, it's talking about Jonathan, Saul's son. And he sits there, and he's talking to his armor bearer. And he says, you know, I think we need to go over and attack this outpost. And his armor bearer is going, it's just the two of us? Why are you thinking about going and attacking this outpost? And I thought Jonathan's response was kind of cool. He says, it doesn't matter if it's a few of us or a lot of us. If God's with us, we're okay. He says, I'll tell you what i do. We're going to climb down these rocks because there's a valley that separates them. We're going to climb down, and as we're climbing... 
if, God, you know, if the guys sit there and say, stay where you are, we're going to stay where we're at. We're not going to go attack them. But if they tell us to come up, then that's God telling us to come up. So they do that. And, and it says in the space of an acre, so a small area, they, had, they actually fought these guys, and the, the two of them did, and they killed 20 of the enemy. Okay? We're going to pick up the story from, from there. In 1 Samuel 14, 15 to 19, it says, Suddenly, panic broke out in the Philistine army, both in the camp and in the field, including even the outposts and raiding parties. And just then, an earthquake struck, and everyone was terrified. Saul's lookouts in, in Gibbeth of Benjamin saw a strange sight. The vast army of Philistines began to melt away in every direction. Saul's response to this is, he says, call the roll and find out who's missing. And when they had checked, they found that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. So there's only two people that are, are missing at this point. And yet, you see the Philistine army falling away, and it's like, this isn't making any sense. Then Saul shouted to Ahaji, bring the ephod here, and for at that time, he was wearing the ephod in front of the Israelites. But while Saul was talking to the priests, the confusion in the Philistine camp grew louder and louder. So Saul said to the priest, never mind, let's get going. And the reason that's important is you think, okay, Saul, you're doing it right this time. You're going to check with God and see what's going to happen. What should I do? And then you see all this confusion that's going on and all this noise. Okay, One of the translations used the word noise there. And the reason that's important is because when we're going to battle, we're having challenges in our life. If we're not careful, that noise drives us to think we have to react right then, right now. And that's what Saul did. And the challenge with that is that, you know, you think, okay, Saul, what, what are you doing? But his reaction kind of gives you, again, his heart. He thinks, I've got this. We've got to do something. Let's go. So the story continues on. And during that battle, they're, they're going after the Philistines. They're slaughtering the Philistines all along the way. Okay? The enemy is in utter confusion. And it said earlier that he had a small army. And they're coming through and they're just killing these guys. Okay? They're having so much victory that Saul utters this oath and says... If anybody eats before we kill them all, I will, you will die. Okay? He didn't ask for God's direction on what they should do. He didn't stop, take the time, and say, okay, God, do I continue to follow them? Do I eat? You know, what is your plan here? He again comes up with his own plan. And in the middle of that, his son, Jonathan, who was nowhere near him when this all happened, he stops, he sees some honey on the ground, dips his staff in it, eats it, and rejuvenates his strength and continues on to fight. Later it would come out that Jonathan had disobeyed that oath, and Saul was willing to kill his son. Over an oath that he spoke, in my opinion, a rash statement. It wasn't something that God spoke to him. It was something he came up with on his own. He wanted to ensure that his men didn't quit fighting. So in his mind, the right thing to do was not to stop. And the way to do that was instill fear in them. And then all of a sudden, it comes out that his son is the one who, who chose, you know, ate something. And he's not willing to back down from that. And it ends up that through the different people that in, Jonathan doesn't get killed. Okay? He has conversations. But my point being is that sometimes as Christians, we can be the same thing. We can sit there and make rash statements to people, and we can want, feel that we have to fulfill our word because, you know, your word is your bond, your word is what everything is about, and that's a true statement. Where you have to be careful with is when you speak a word that wasn't directed by God and aren't willing to humble yourself and say, you know what, I spoke that out of anger, I spoke that out of haste, I was wrong. Therefore, I cannot fulfill that. Does that make sense? Um, so we, we sit there and looked at Saul's life a little bit. We're going to look at David's life. And he gives us a better example sometimes of what things that 
happen when we wait on God and in his timing, okay? In 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 4, it says, Now the Lord was with Samuel. You have mourned long enough for Saul. I rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find the man named Jesse who lives there. For I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, How can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which one of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong? They asked him. Do you come in peace? And I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, the, the town's response was, this was a big deal. You know, sometimes, apparently Samuel had a reputation for getting things done, and sometimes it included bloodshed. But my point being is that Samuel, at this point, had to make a decision. God told him, I want you to go anoint one of Jesse's sons. And he knew that it could cost him his life. Yet, he chose to go ahead and do that. And sometimes, we allow fear, if we're not careful, to stop us from what God's called us to do. Um, let's look at verses 5 through 13 there. Yes, Samuel replied, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons, invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Elam and thought, surely this is the one that the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see the things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Ahab to step forward and walk in front of him. Samuel said, Samuel, but Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shimea, but Samuel said, Neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. But here's my point to this. So Samuel is given instructions, okay? And he knows that one of Jesse's sons, he's supposed to anoint the new king. And Jesse brings all of his sons, he thinks, and all of them go by. I can't imagine how awkward that would have been for Samuel. He's sitting there going, but God, you told me it was one of these sons. He's not, he's, you told me that it wasn't any of these sons, so which is it? And sometimes if we're not careful, we don't go back and say, okay, God, show me what questions to ask. And so then he asks Jesse, is this all of them? And he finds out, oh, no, there's one more. But, you know, he's just a little runt. So, you know, it can't be him. But yet that's exactly who God chose to use. And if we're not careful, when we're sitting there and God tells us to do certain things, we get in a hurry, we want it to happen, and we don't wait for God to sit there and fully show us what he wants us to do. So you look at the rest of David's life, and we're going to kind of fly through a couple of things. And that is that David's anointed, okay? But what I thought was interesting is it doesn't say that he necessarily told him he was anointing him to be the king. And yet David, I think, knew more than, than what he spoke maybe, Okay? David would go on to um, play the harp for Saul. He got to see how the kind of the kingdom worked a little bit. And then Saul got angry with him and tried to kill him. And then Goliath um, got involved in the situation. He kills Goliath. He meets Jonathan. 
and becomes really good friends with Jonathan. He has success in everything that he does as far as David does. You know, he's one of the commanders of Saul's army again, which is kind of funny that he tries to kill him and then he makes him a commander. I'm not sure why you would do that, but I guess keep your enemies close. Um, but my point being is that everything that David did, he was successful in, okay? He gets praise and that causes jealousy with Saul. And I think at that point, maybe Saul started putting the pieces together and figuring out, huh, Samuel told me that there's going to be another one that God's anointed. And he's starting to see the way that David is rising in power. So from that day forward, he actually sets out to have David killed. First, he tries to assassinate him at a, at a meal. Then he sits there and becomes more aggressive, and he actually starts sending out his army at times to go after David. So David flees, okay? He doesn't take it up on himself to defend himself. He doesn't take it up on himself to just go out and, and say, okay, I'm going to be the king. I'm going to make it happen. He actually leaves the area. He ends up with a band of about 600 guys. Um, they're in a different country. And in 1 Samuel 22, 5, one of the prophets comes up to David and tells him, hey, you're supposed to go back to Judah. Now, if you've got a king that wants to kill you, going back to that country wouldn't seem to be the brightest move. But he says, okay, God, if that's what you want, we'll do that. While he's there, let's look at 1 Samuel 23, 1 through 6 and pick up the story. One day the news came to David that the Philistines were at Calah, stealing grain from the threshing floors. David asked the Lord, should I go and attack them? Yes, go and save Calah, the Lord told him. But David's men said, we are afraid, even here in Judah. We certainly don't want to go to Calah to fight the whole Philistine army. So David asked the Lord again. And again the reply, Lord replied, go down to Calah, for I will conquer the Philistines. So David and his men went to Calah, and they slaughtered the Philistines and took all their livestock and rescued the people of Calah. Now, when Abathar, son of Amalek, fled to David at Calah, he brought with him the ephod with him. So he brings this ephod. That was one of the ways that God communicated what he wanted uh, people to do. But I think it's interesting that, you know, when we look at Saul's life earlier, one of the things, if you look through his life, is there's several times where he says, but the people wanted. So this is why I chose to do something I wasn't supposed to. David, on the other hand, the men said, we don't want to go there. So he didn't just assume that he heard the right thing from God. He went back and asked again. And God says, go. So he did. So he goes there. He's rescued the city, right? You can imagine the city's pretty happy with him at this point. But let's read on. In verses uh, 9 through 13, the same chapter, David learned of Saul's plan to kill him, to trap him there. Abar, Abathar, the priest, and told Abathar, the priest, to bring the ephod and ask the Lord what he should do. Then David prayed, O Lord, God of Israel, I've heard that Saul is planning to come and destroy Caleb because I am here. Will the leaders of Caleb betray me to him? And will Saul actually come as I have heard? O Lord God of Israel, please tell me. And the Lord said, he will come. Again, David asked, will the leaders of Caleb betray me and my men to Saul? And the Lord replied to him, yes, they will betray you. I mean, on the surface, if I'm there and I've just saved the city, I would think that the obvious answer is, I, I don't know, would I even ask? And yet David took this to the Lord and the Lord told him, yes, Saul's coming. But he didn't get the answer for the first thing that he asked him, which was, will they betray me? So he asked again, let's clarify this. And God says, yes, they will. And David does what God tells him to do. He leaves the city. Sometimes when we have these challenges and we think we have the obvious answer in front of us, it's not as obvious as we think it is. We still need to ask. And that can be challenging. You know, sometimes we can think that, okay, I don't need to go to God every time I have, you know, what clothes do I need to wear today? And I'm not saying you need to get to that point, but my point is don't make assumptions that you don't need the insight from God. God sees down the road in ways that we can't. 
we typically have a very short-sighted way of seeing things, and we have to be careful with that. So David, at this point, knows that he's going to be king at some point. Saul knows he's going to be king at, at some point. And we're going to pick up in Samuel, 1 Samuel 24, 1 through 10. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of Inagenda. So Saul chose 3,000 troops to go from all of Israel to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. At the place where the road passes some of the sheepfolds, Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding further back in that very cave. Now is your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But David's conscience began to bother him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do to my Lord the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, My Lord the king. And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Then he shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. And my point being is, here again, it's one of those situations where David had the opportunity to kill Saul. I think that, you know, we could look, sometimes we look at opportunities that stand before us as God's way of helping us to move forward in whatever he's told us to do. But sometimes we need to wait. We need to ask, all right, is this what you want me to do? And I think it's interesting that David had a reverence for someone who had been anointed king. He didn't just sit there and go, hey, I got a perfect opportunity. We can make this happen. We can solve the whole thing. I can be king and we're good to go. He was comfortable with taking the time to wait on God to do the, the work. And sometimes, like I say, that can be challenging. Um, let's look at the last couple of scriptures there, Andy. I'm not saying it's always easy because I have found things in my own life where that is challenging. Everybody in this room has found that to be challenging at times. And sometimes if we're not careful we can actually feel guilty about those challenges. The idea, though, is to learn from them and move on. Um, Let's look at Proverbs 28, 26. Those who trust their own insight are foolish, but anyone who walks with wisdom is safe. Go ahead to the next one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Then you will have healing for your body and strength for your bones. So he just reminds us, and you look all through the scriptures, if you want to look up something, look up all the times when it talks about God's wisdom compared to yours. We only can see what's happening now. We might see a trend or what we perceive to be a trend, but that does not make it accurate. Nor does it, do we have any idea of what's going to happen further down the road. And I'm going to give a couple examples from my life. In 1995, U.S. Air closed their um, hangar in Indianapolis. I was an aircraft mechanic, and I could go anywhere in the system that I, my seniority would carry me. And two places that looked appealing to me was Charlotte and Pittsburgh because of my seniority numbers. For me, I wanted to go to Pittsburgh um, simply because I, it looked like I actually had an opportunity to be on day shift in Pittsburgh. And it was like I'd been working third shift for six years at that point. Day shift sounded really good. And my wife, 
uh, can tell you, we went there on our anniversary weekend to look out, out the city. Every door in that city was closed. She was looking for a school. We, couldn't, we didn't find housing. We didn't find anything. And it was just like, oh, I really don't want to go to Charlotte. Came down to Charlotte. We walk in to the first school. Boom, there's the door, wide open. She goes, this is where I'm going. It's like, you haven't been accepted yet. Nope, this is where I'm going. And point being is, we went to another school, and she's going, I'm telling you, we're wasting our time. I'm going there. So go, and we find, look for housing. And literally buy a house on a handshake. The guy was from Canada. I don't know if that's the way they do it there or what, but we actually bought a house on, on a handshake, and it was like, okay, I guess this is where we're going. But the problem with it was I didn't want to be here. I didn't embrace coming here. And I would not change a thing now if I could go back other than my attitude. Because I was looking at it from Chris's perspective. This is what I see. This is where we need to go. And yet God had a different plan. In 2010... I had finished some schooling up to going back to school, post Philip Morris, and ended up with two job opportunities. And one of those I really liked. It was down in, in Monroe. It was being an electrician and a mechanic, and it was a kind of a, a sort of a career change, but I was going to be doing things I was familiar with and really liked the opportunity to work for this company. Um, had three interviews with them. They told me that, okay, we're going to call you on, I think it was Thursday or Friday, and we're going to actually offer you the package. And in the meantime, I go to uh, another interview, and it was actually with a person I'd worked with at US Air. And I'm sitting there, and it was funny. I walk into the hangar, and many of you people won't understand this, but there's an F uh, Falcon 200 sitting in there, and I walk in, and I said, oh, ATF-3 engines, and I just kind of cringed because they're a dirty, nasty engine, they're a pain to work on, and he goes, most people can't even spell that, but anyway, my point being is, I end up getting offered a job from there, so now I've got two job offers on the table, and it was like, okay, God, I want this one, but I'll do what you want me to do, and so I said, okay, if this they're supposed to call me on Friday. If they don't call me by Monday, I'll go ahead and take the Sonic job, even though I don't want it. Sorry, Bruce. Um, but anyway, my point being is that they didn't call on Friday. And it was like, man. So they didn't call on Sunday, Saturday or Sunday or Monday. And it was like, okay. So I called Bruce and told him I'd take the job, and we got a start date and all that stuff. On Tuesday, I got a phone call from the other company. And it was just like, this isn't fair. I don't want to not take that job. But I had a decision to make. But because of my experience as far as with previous jobs and stuff, I had seen where God would direct me in things. And I could, I said, okay, I'll do that. It was challenging, but I took it. I had no idea at that point, that was in 2010, that was a year before Thrive started. The reason that's important is because the job in Monroe was going to be lots of overtime. The Sonic job was a very flexible schedule um, that we had. A year later, you know, Scott and I had kind of met in, in that whole situation. We're talking about that maybe another time. But my point being is, it started a relationship between Scott and I that I wouldn't have necessarily had had I taken the job down to Monroe. And so I'm sitting there and we take the, you know, we're, we end up starting going to Thrive. A year later, we're in this facility and my wife will vouch for you, maybe even cringe. Um, I spent a significant amount of my year here. Um, for that first year, um, in particular. And Scott and I got to know each other really well 
I mean, we'd have conversations about anything. And what was interesting about that was it gave us time to have conversations where we didn't have to necessarily agree. That we could both agree the other person was wrong and it was okay. And my point to that, but that developed a relationship that didn't even necessarily seem that important at the time. Okay? Um, In 2013, I felt called into the full-time ministry, and it was like, I was kind of like Saul. I went and hid in the baggage. (laughs) Um, I wouldn't wouldn't even admit it to myself. I wouldn't write it down. She always up and asked me about it. It's like, okay, cat's out of the bag. So then, but here's my response. My response was, okay, maybe it's here. Maybe it's here. And she can tell you. She nodded her head. Uh, but anyway, I, you know, it was like everything I was looking was, oh, it must be over here. Or it must be over here. I was trying to figure out a destination. We have to be able to be comfortable waiting on God to fulfill what he speaks to us and not try to do it yourself. I began to relax finally, I think at some point, didn't I? Anyway, she's not nodding her head. Um, but anyway... My point being is, is that began to relax. Say, okay, if you're going to make this happen, it's got to be you that makes it happen. It can't be me. In 2014, December of 2014, I had, was in the middle of getting ready to change jobs, was looking for a different job, and had an opportunity that suddenly arose in, in Raleigh. Talk, a friend of mine called me out of the blue Hadn't spoken to him in probably 10 years. And he's telling me about where he's working. He's working for GE in Raleigh. And it was just like, okay. And I had misunderstood that they were getting ready to hire. So I called him one day to see what that looked like. He goes, oh, no, they're not hiring at all. He goes to work that day, and he calls me back. He says, you won't believe this, but they just put nine positions up on the board. I'm sitting there going, okay, God's got this. So end up put an application in, and Lisa and I had gone up. She was actually doing travel nursing in Raleigh at the time, and um, so it made a nice, easy stay. We could kind of scope out the area. Went to a search service, and they had, it was weird, they had the, sorry, they had the council come up and pray for the offering, and it, it turned out it was just one person in the council, and their, their sanctuary is probably twice as deep as this one, Okay. And we're sitting in the back, the second section there. And I swear, it felt like the lady who was right in front of us talked to us. It's like, you're supposed to be praying for the offering. And we left that service, had a conversation, and said, okay, I guess we're going to Raleigh. And in my mind, that was just confirmation after confirmation after confirmation you're going to Raleigh. And she can tell you, um, she did not want to leave Concord, put it that way. Um, and yet at the same time, it was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. So I go up, I have the interview, and I can honestly say I have never not wanted a job ever so much in my life. There was absolutely nothing that appealed about that job. And it was just like, you've got to be kidding me. And I thought, okay, but maybe this is just God getting me in position for what he wants to do in Raleigh. It was my justification in my head. But at the same time, I didn't want to go. And so the next day, I'm on my way to work. And I'm having a conversation with God. And he asked me, he goes, will you go if I tell you to? That is a dangerous question because you have, a, you have several choices. You can not answer it, which is actually the same thing as answering it, um, or you can say no or you can say yes. And I was like, all right, I will. And they told me they wouldn't call me for like five days uh, to let me know as far as the interview results. So I'm sitting there kind of thinking, oh, I think it was the next day I got a phone call that said, uh, we don't want you. And it was like, I was really relieved. 
It's like, ah, oh, good. I don't have to go. But the other part of me was like, but God, it looked like you opened up all these doors. Why am I being told no? This doesn't make any sense to me. I wrestled with that for a long time. 2015, um, we're having a council meeting. Richie can tell you. And we're about adding staff onto church. And then they had a meeting after I left. And I ended up getting hired. Um, But my point being to that is I had no idea that that was getting ready to happen. Two, Lisa can tell you, we had a conversation in December. She said something about working here. And I said, there's no way. But when it happened in that February for the job... It was strictly a God thing, and I recognized it as such, okay? My point being is, is that when we sit here and you look at your life, you only have a small perspective of what that looks like, okay? And sometimes, I think most of the time, when God speaks something to you, there is going to be a period of waiting. Sometimes there's going to be a period That may be days, it might be weeks, it might be months, it might be years. And the really hard part is sometimes the answer to our prayers is no. That can be really difficult. You're sitting there going, God, but I'm praying for this. And he's sitting there going, I understand that. I love you, but the answer is no. And that can be a challenge. You have to be able to come to the grasp that you still trust him when the answer is no. You still trust him when the answer is yes. Okay? If I was, like I say, if I was to look back at my life, I can see milestones in my life in 2014, 13, 10, 9, 2002, 1995, 1989, 1985, 1981, 1980, 1978. I can look at a roadmap now and see where God was faithful and directed me each step of the way. I couldn't see it at the time. And there are times I sit there and I get anxious, okay? I want things to happen now. There are times that I can still sit here in the simple things and not sit there and ask God what he wants to do. I was sharing with you earlier this morning. On Wednesday, I'm sitting there. I've got to prepare for this message. And I think, okay, I had a project up at the house I wanted to get done. I think it's only going to take me 30 minutes to an hour. I'll get it done. And it's been on my list for a couple weeks, and it's just like, it's starting to look bad. I need to get this done. And there was a part of me, there was a little voice in my head that said, no, you need to go study. I didn't stop and ask that simple little question. You think that I'm doing a study on trusting and waiting and listening to what God speaks. But I tripped up and thought, no, I get this done, and then I can go in there and get this done. I forget all that happened on Wednesday, but Wednesday didn't really happen. I got like an hour of time to study, okay? Thursday, I think, okay, I'm going to go in there and nail it. We're, we're good. I, and I'm, I'm not as nervous as I normally am when I'm preparing a sermon. When, or Thursday, I get a phone call from my wife. It says, uh, we've got a problem with the car. Um, it keeps shutting itself off. I've got a road trip today of seven and a half hours. Um, it needs to work. So I had to stop my day. Go get the car, take it to the dealership. They fixed it. Go back and get the car, take it back to her. So my point being is my day was totally wrecked again. Friday, the same type of thing. But it's one of those things where you have to sit there and go, okay, God, when he speaks something to you, ask for questions. Ask the question that says, okay, God, what are you trying to tell me in this right now? Do I need, if I on Wednesday morning had stopped and said, okay, God, Are you telling me that I need to stop doing this and go and study? Because you know what the rest of my week's going to be like. And I didn't do that. And in hindsight, I wish I had. I would dare say that most of you have had those experiences probably in the last week or two. And you're going to continue to have them. I want to encourage you to go back and sit there and look at those. And when God speaks something to you, ask those questions. In Galatians 6, 9, it says, So let's not get tired of doing good. It's just the right time, and we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. 
You notice it says there, at just the right time. That doesn't say my time. It's his time. We have to be able to, one, be confident that we're going to reap that harvest, but it's going to be in his time and in his way. 